Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Excited to be with you today, Crystal. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Oh, you laughing? Pleasure. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I can't it's, be excited to be with you. Yeah, because we're together every day. It's, that's true, but I'm still excited. That's that's beautiful, baby. <laughs> I'm excited to be with you as well. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Wilson of the Debunk the Funk YouTube channel. We're going to be going, we're going to do the best we can to go claim for claim when it comes to RFK and medical issues and, you know, medicine issues. And we'll see where he's right, where he's wrong, what the truth is. We're yeah. going to take, so the main point here is, Let's be specific. Let's be precise. Let's see what you're saying and whether or not it's actually true. Yes. That's the whole goal, right? So you can't be a fucking smear merchant. No, this is, this is serious. This is detailed. Let's dive into it. Yes. And uh, I recommend his channel. He, he doesn't only focus. It's not a just like RFK focused channel, but he goes through a lot of different, um, you know, anti-vax or medical misinformation. He does a very, I think, thorough and even handed job. So we're excited to talk to him. Yes, definitely. But before we do that, oh, I should do a shameless plug. I don't do shameless plugs enough. I yeah. should shameless plug some more. Let's do it. So everybody, uh, do us a big favor. Click like, click subscribe. That's always fun. Go on over to Substack. Link in the video description box below. When you go to Substack, if you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every interview, and you get it a day early. And everybody else can sign up for free on Substack, and then you get the audio version of the show, and it drops a day later, usually on Saturdays. You also get the newsletters and stuff. So uh, it definitely hooks up, because you know what? We don't take any corporate money. We don't take any advertiser money. We're very proud of that fact. We build this through small dollar donations. So if you support what we do and you like it, consider uh, helping us out. All right, now that the shameless plug is done, let's get into the most important conversation for today. Mm. There's a story that broke a couple days ago, June 30th, Charlotte, North Carolina. There is, uh, you know, an amusement park, North Carolina amusement park. And somebody looked up and said, good googly moogly, that uh, roller coaster is literally like falling apart. There's a giant crack in the roller coaster, and when the coaster goes around in the circle, it almost totally disconnects. Like, it's hanging on by a literal, like, cunt hair. <laughs> it, is, it is for dear life it's hanging on. And, uh, in fact, here, we'll show you the video and a little CNN clip on it. Take a look. Tonight, inspectors on the scene at a North Carolina amusement park after a crack was spotted in a roller coaster support pillar. The Fury 325 roller coaster peaks at 325 feet high, takes riders as fast as 95 miles per hour as it whips around the track. Jeremy Wagner was at the park when he noticed the crack. He took this video that you're watching right now. You showed the video that you took to several employees at the park. You were understandably concerned, but you didn't really feel a sense of urgency, and it appears that it wasn't until you called a local fire department that the ride was actually shut down. Have you heard from anybody at the park? Have they spoken to you, talked to you about, you know, what they're doing and what went wrong? No, I haven't heard a thing. And it was a sense of urgency. And that's, I felt there's no urgency in any of the employees. And even after they had me airdrop the video, the guest services person walked off and said, I'll send this to somebody. And they just turned around and walked off, you know, nonchalant. So as if it's not disturbing enough, that video that shows the crack, like, shifting every time the roller coaster goes by, he tells them and they don't even do anything about it. <laughs> he had to call the fire department before anyone got involved. Who knows how many more dozens or hundreds of times that they ran that ride before they shut the thing down the next day. Doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. Uh, okay, so now comes my controversial take. You ready for this? I'm ready. Fuck roller coasters. <laughs> Fuck them. I like roller coasters. They're stupid. They're fun. They're dumb. 
They're fun. It is like, okay. You're much safer on a roller coaster than you are driving your car home. I understand a child being like, I want to get thrown around in space. Because, you know, kids love, like, getting thrown in the air or throw them on the couch or get them on a trampoline or whatever. Yeah. Right? That's part and parcel of being a kid is, like, you're you're exploring space and time in real time. And it's like, this is new. Wow. The air is a thing. I can move through it. Like, it's a childish thing. But when you're a grown-ass man or a grown-ass woman, it's like, oh, I'm going to go in a circle really, really fast. Like, bitch, you just drove a car here. You're going 75 miles an hour on the highway. That should be enough. Right? You ever taken a turn at 42 miles an hour? Congratulations. That's a mini roller coaster. But you want to get on something. Like, here's the thing that drives me crazy, Crystal, is that, like, the people who work at at these uh, parks and the people who created the park and the people who built the the infrastructure for the roller coaster, these are regular people. The guy's name is Dennis. He woke up in the morning and farted and had a breakfast and he's pissed at his wife and they argued and he went to work and was hammering away making the fucking roller coaster. The people are flawed and they're making this thing and everybody has this default like, bro, it's totally safe and cool and stuff when I'm going 100 miles an hour in a circle, it's 500 feet in the air, no big deal or anything. And then to your point, the, the thing was falling apart in front of everybody's eyes. Somebody blew the whistle on it and they didn't even stop it right away. It took an extended period of time before they were like, okay, yeah, maybe we should probably do something about this. What does that tell you about what goes on with roller coasters? Where I grew up uh, in New York, there's this this uh, dragon coaster at mm-hmm. Playland. Yeah, and I've been on it. When I was Fun. a kid, you'd go, bro, like, it was so old, the wood was rusting. The- <laughs> yes, I, I said that on purpose. It wasn't even that the wood was, like, moldy and mildewy and, like, and, like falling apart. Like, somehow the wood had rust. Like, it was creaky as hell. It was all discolored. You saw things falling apart on it. And everybody would be like, mm-hmm. hooray, we're going on the dragon coaster. Hooray. And it's like, when you die, I'm not going to feel that bad. Because you have all the warning uh, up front. Like, you, the, all the warning signs are right there. And you still want to do this. Um, a few things. First of all, I think you're being rather judgy about what constitutes grown-up activities. Facts. For a man who wears Facts. slippers everywhere and loves still like, wearing gummy worms. So Facts. there's there's that. Number two. Tell me about the statistics of injury and death on your beloved dragon coaster. Statistics. Versus, versus literally driving your car home. Okay, tell me about that. Number three, uh, don't tread on me. I like roller coasters. <laughs> They're fun. Who are you? You want to legalize cocaine. I do. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and ban roller coasters. I know. Hold on. Tell I, me in what I world this has any coherent, makes any coherence. I don't want to ban them. You just want to judge people for riding them. That's to, all. To your stats point. To your stats point. <laughs> did you know that the Titan submersible from the Ocean Gate Company was 100% safe until it wasn't? Okay, but they were talking about a sample of like two times this shit had been out there. No, not that's tested, not, not regular. No, how many, how many trips had they been on? Listen, the whole like submarine submersible community was very proud of themselves because they had a stellar record. Yeah, but not for this, decades. Not this particular submersible, which had made like three trips. Of course, and was no, no, run no, by a video that. game controller. Here's and my there point. were no regulations. Roller coasters are regulated. Now, there was a failure here of regulation and enforcement of said regulation. But if you look at the overwhelming roller coaster community body of evidence, you will find they are far safer than like maybe these things that you're very into. Okay. <laughs> All right. So listen, let me respond to this. <laughs> so here's my point. <laughs> 
So on the statistics thing, <laughs> there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, okay. Old quote, okay? All right. All right. And my point here is you use your logic, right? Like, for real, if you if something seems a little too good to be true and a little wacky, it's a little too good to be true and a little wacky. Now, by the way, I'm not calling to ban him. I'm not calling to ban him. But here's what I am calling for. We need to regulate these things a lot more aggressively than we do. Because my guess is, just like, you know how there's that report that comes out on U.S. infrastructure every couple of years, the um, Society of Civil Engineers, that, and it's always like, you know, for the longest time, it was like, you get a D minus, America. Right. Your bridges suck balls. Right. And then you read the specifics, and it's like, here's a list of 12,362 bridges that are absolutely structurally deficient. Right. Everybody right. just reads it, and they're like, okay, got it. And then they go over the bridge the next day, right? And my point is, I bet if there was some sort of a report on, uh, you know, these roller carnivals coasters. or whatever, roller coasters, all this stuff, that they would actually be really, like, on the brink of complete and utter disaster and failure. And there's always stories about somebody gets stuck upside down See, on a ride. And Actually, I just saw one of those, too, where some people got Right, stuck that's what I'm saying. So, look, I'm not saying bad. They were by fine. The way, largely, Nobody was injured. I'm largely being as obnoxious as I am for comedic effect. I'm, and some people are watching, they don't realize that. But I'm, I'm largely joking here. But I, my serious position is I do think they should regulate them more strictly. Um, and I do think that, that a lot of the people who work at the parks are sort of you know, they're just teens who are hired uh, during the summer. And no shade at them. They're just trying to get a job and, right. you know, get paid or whatever. But I do think you need some degree. They should bring in some people who are expertise, uh, who are experts and who built the thing and who have the knowledge to to deal with a serious situation like this and who are architects. And I think there should be stronger regulation of these things because I, I honestly, I don't think, I think we're lucky that there hasn't been more instances of like a total collapse of these things. It is sort of funny that we put... Uh, speaking as a former head lifeguard at my local community pool, it is funny how we put teenagers in charge of these like critical life facts. Functions. Yeah, I bet it was a teen who was pulling the thing, like, letting them go out of like tradition and the fact that these companies don't want to pay people more to you know right. have whatever. Anyway, the, I I actually I, I don't I'm not sure I'm convinced of your point that roller coasters are less well regulated and less well like um, evaluator inspected, that's the word I'm going for, than our infrastructure. I mean, you think about, there was just huge train derailment uh, in Yellowstone because the bridge, this bridge that the train was going over just literally collapsed. And um, we've had a couple instances. Remember there was one in Pittsburgh also, bridge just completely collapsed. So uh, I definitely think our infrastructure needs to be upgraded and inspected and you know brought up to par and then some. But if I had to guess, I actually bet that they do a better job taking a look at and inspecting and maintaining roller coasters overall just judging by the rate of failure. And also because I think even though the overall statistics show that roller coasters are safer than normal driving, certainly than swimming pools, swimming pools are actually drowning is a, one of the primary causes of death for young children, et cetera. But um, there is a just human reaction of like, oh, you're going super fast and you're just strapped in with this little thing and you're going upside down and whatever. So we got to make sure that this stuff is on point. If I had to guess, I bet they actually do a better job of inspecting those than they do, like, our roads and bridges. Maybe, maybe. The thing I can't get over is if something does go wrong, that is so goddamn humiliating and embarrassing for the people who are on it. Because it's like, really, that's how you went. That's how you died. You were on some dumb thing for cheap thrills that was, like, just really silly. And that's how you ended up dying. And I can't get over that. In the same way, like, if I ever die in a plane crash know that those last like three minutes were 
I've experienced every negative emotion that is possible to experience, and I invented new ones to experience. Because <laughs> the idea of I'm going 500 miles or 600 miles an hour, thousands of feet off the ground in this little metal tube, yeah. and if it crashes, even though they're relatively safe, if it crashes, it's like, why was I in this thing going 500 miles an hour in a little metal tube? This seems like a very, very bad idea. This is my point about sort of like, forget the stats, just use your logic. <laughs> Right. And my <laughs> logic says, my logic that, says, don't go on the plane. Don't go on the plane. Why would you go on the plane? That's not safe. Don't do that. Um, yeah. But humans are uh, notoriously bad at like logic and statistics and numbers and whatever. So go going with the old gut instinct. Sometimes good. Sometimes reach you, leads you in a bad direction. Yeah, I think that's true. Anyway, uh, before everybody rips me a new one in the comment section, which I'm sure they're already doing. Let me just say I'm kidding. I'm very libertarian on social issues. You do whatever you want. Uh, I would say, though, I would just like a little more uh, regulation of these things because yes. I want to avoid situations like this in the future. Yes, I want cocaine and roller coasters and regulations, all of those things. Exactly. All right. Uh, this is interesting. So we'll see if we have a little disagreement on this one. So there was a new protest from the um, activist group Just Stop Oil where they disrupted a pride parade in London, blocking specifically Coca-Cola's float and spraying black and pink paint over the road. Um, here's what they say from their Twitter thread uh, in reaction to you know, explaining this protest. They say, LGBTQ plus supporters of Just Stop Oil met with organizers of Pride in London demanding they make a statement condemning new oil and gas licenses. Pride in London have failed to do this, so we have taken action. Who do you think will be the first to suffer the consequences of societal collapse? It will be marginalized communities such as the LGBTQ plus community. Pride has a responsibility to take action to protect their community and they are failing. Pride is a protest, but Pride in London allows destructive industries such as Coca-Cola, who are the world's biggest plastic polluter and have been accused of numerous human rights, numerous human rights abuses to co-opt it and pinkwash themselves. The LGBTQ plus supporters of Just Stop Oil have taken action against Pride in London today because the organization is working with industries complicit in worsening the climate crisis. Um, they go on, but that's the general gist of it. Kyle, your thoughts. Um, so this is the CIA that did this. That's what I think. <laughs> uh, or the British, what is it, the GCHQ or something like that? The British version of uh, yeah, the CIA? Sure, I forget. Yeah. I forget what it's called. But uh, man, this is wild. So just to sum it up for everybody in simple terms, this is a pride parade. So mm -hmm. like gay rights, trans rights, stuff like that being protested by Just Stop Oil, which is a group that's trying to get green and renewable technology and mm -hmm. get off fossil fuels. Now, let me be clear up front. Uh, I agree with getting off of um, green. I agree with getting off of fossil fuels and getting on green and renewable technology. We might disagree in the particulars of how you do that. Um, but I agree with the general goal and I agree with the goal of, of pride. Like, I think we need equal rights for gay people. We need it all across the world. Uh, so I have many issues with this. I disagree with the Just Stop Oil people. I think the first point I'll make is it's like prioritization of enemies, right? This is a problem that people have on the left is, um, oftentimes for personal reasons and gripes, people would rather do like friendly fire at somebody who 90% agrees with them than going after somebody who 100% disagrees with them. Mm -hmm. And if I was making a list of all of the groups or individuals or corporations to protest uh, because they're dirty and they're polluting, uh, this is very close to the bottom of the list. It's very close. Like you should much more be going after ExxonMobil or BP or conservative politicians who are actively trying to uh, you know, increase use of fossil fuels. I just find it very like, 
there, there's no solidarity here. And it's like, we're going to go after somebody who it's, it's very awkward to go after a pride event. And then of course, what you had is underneath the post, you had right wingers who were like, this is accidentally based. I'm with you because they're just anti pride. So if there is any CIA involvement here, I think it is the co-optation of liberation struggles such as that in the LGBTQ community uh, to allow it to be very surface level virtue signal and co-opted by evil corporations such as Coca-Cola. So as such, I don't know. I mean, I 100% see where you're coming from. You're like, all right, really? You're going to protest pride. But on the other hand, there is a level of like hypocrisy here. Um, there is a level of allowing what should be a more radical movement that has aims below just like the identity critique. Um, there is a level in which I, I understand where they're coming from of like, all right, you've let this thing just become completely corporate. You've let companies just be able to pinkwash themselves and pretend like they're allies in any sort of a real way. When we see with the the Bud Light reaction and the Target reaction and the Starbucks reaction to the tiniest bit of pushback on pride and support for uh, gay, lesbian, and trans people, they instantly crumble because they don't mean any of it. They just care about the profit margin and they would be happy to destroy and despoil the world, including, you know, the world that gay and lesbian people live in and depend on if they can turn a little bit more profit. So I think exposing the hollowness of some of the just surface level identity displays that don't contain a more radical critique, I have no problem with that. So let me say this, Coca-Cola at Pride, it 100% is corporate virtue signaling. Yes. Uh, it 100% is for money. They're hopping on what they view as, you know, it's a, it's a hot issue. We're going to be on the right side of this because they've decided after doing calculations, this will make us more money in the yeah. long run than if we don't do it. I agree with right. you on that 100%. But I'd rather have them do that than not do it or be anti-gay if they thought being anti-gay would make them more money. Mm -hmm. So True. even though it's hollow, even though it's virtue signaling, at the end of the day, I don't have much of a critique against it other than to say, yes, it's hollow. Yes, it's virtue signally. But OK, I guess it's better that you do it than you don't do it. So here's the thing, though, is, you know, you made the point about, all right, if, you, if your list of enemies, like, you know, your list of who you would go after, pride would be at the very bottom. But there's a potential strategic and tactical benefit from targeting the type of people who would be at pride and trying to raise awareness among the type of people who would be at pride. Because these are people who are more likely to be your allies um, in a struggle to protect the planet. Why would this planet. make them like you more? This would make them get their guard up and be like, screw you, man. Potentially. But the idea is, okay, who are you going to try to raise awareness uh, among? Who are you going to try to help them understand and come to a more radical critique and reveal some I inadequacies or some inconsistencies in their way of thinking? This would be a logical group um, because they're likely more likely to be your ideological allies than, you know, if you're like going to some right wing anti pride fest or whatever, they don't they're not with you on uh, gay rights. They're not with you on the planet. And so you're just banging your head against the wall. Yeah, I just don't think that's how it works. It reminds me of people who critique Democrats 100 percent of the time and never Republicans. And they go, bro, I'm just trying to make them better. And it's like, yeah, maybe at first kind of a little bit. But then when you do it for five freaking years straight, it's like, no, maybe you're just anti-Democrat and you don't have any critique of the Republicans. And why don't you focus on the people who are your bigger enemies? Look, I think my biggest problem here is if you're going to do a protest, like there's this fetishization, I, that's a hard word to say, of protests mm -hmm. in the sense that people view them as like they are definitionally good. 
Mm. And I don't agree with that in the same way that I don't uh, I don't agree that, you know, bipartisanship is definitionally good. It's like, no, it depends on the specifics. What exactly are we being bipartisan about? Like, what are the what are the specific issues? So for protest, you need to either disrupt power centers to force concessions. Mm -hmm. That's one kind of protest I think makes sense, which yeah. is why it's great if it's targeted at Wall Street or targeted at Congress or whatever. Like, yeah, disrupt their lives to make them, look, your, li your life is not going to go normally until you address this thing that I care about. That's one way to do it. Another way to protest is to do it in a way that gets more people on your side, right? Or both of those things. Ideally, both of those, you do both those things at the same time. I'm going to get more people on my side and I'm going to disrupt power centers. I don't see this as doing either one of those things. You're not really going after a power center. And the way people are going to interpret this is you're just going after pride. They're not even going to really focus on the fact that you're going after Coca-Cola. Mm. And you're not getting more people on your side because if me, Kyle, uh, you know, I'm not the furthest left dude in the world. World, I think I'm kind of centrist. I'm kind of moderate. I'm sort of like a social Democrat. But on social issues, I'm very on the left, right? But even if I look at it, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, who do you think you're getting on your side? And who do you think you're disrupting to bring about better change? It just strikes me as, it's super virtue signaling of the Just Stop Oil people. I think they're the ones who are more virtue signaling, even more so than the corporations who are marching mm. in pride. Because it's like, we're just gonna, we'll one. go after everybody until we have no allies left, and that's when we'll win for the environment. And it's like, no, you're not doing that. You're actually making it worse. Thank you very much. So I share some of your critiques of, of protests that are not targeted and, you know, not basic, not really aimed at capital. Right. I mean, that's the bottom. Like the things that are most effective are, OK, you have a general strike and this is making life difficult for people who have power, for corporations that have power, et cetera. So I share some of your critiques there of um, protest for protest sake that is not appropriately targeted. I'm a little bit more ambivalent about what you said about, um, you know, I'd rather have the corporations like pretending to be allies of the gay community. I than definitely would not yeah. pretending. Because in some ways, it sort of confuses the issue. I don't like it that they paint themselves as like, oh, we're the good guys. And this has persuaded some number of liberals that like, oh, corporations are actually our allies and we should be like, you know, unequivocally on the side of Disney or whatever. I think in, in some ways, it's a mixed bag and it confuses the issue. And so the goal of this protest, which I support, is to say, no Coca-Cola, just because you put a float in the frickin' Pride Parade and are like waving a rainbow flag doesn't mean that you are good guys. We see through you. We see the deeper harms that you're doing to the planet. And we're not just going to stand by and say like, yes, this is fine. And you're a real ally. And we're just going to keep our mouths shut and not say anything about that. But do you concede that the way this is going to be perceived by most people is just stop oil is protesting pride? That it's not necessarily going to be viewed as like, oh, but it's okay, because in a nuanced way, if you look a little deeper, they're actually going after Coca-Cola in Pride. I feel like the, the top-line takeaway, even for me, is they are protesting Pride, which actually doesn't, doesn't like, make their case well for them. Um, I, I mean, honestly, most people are not even going to know this happened. So. Well, true. <laughs> it's going to get more sure eyeballs like now that we're talking about that it. That compelling anything, yeah. of a point. Um, but... Uh, you know, that's on them to fully explain their goals and the reason that they're taking the actions that they are and people can take away from it what they will. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think that was a good debate. Yes, indeed. And, uh, are these the same people who did like the tomato soup, like the painting protests? Is this the that same might group? be that might like, be throwing right. tomato soup at paintings? And yeah, that. that might be that, right. That was actually a little more confusing to me than this. But see, that's what I'm saying. This, is like this. I actually was like, OK, I see what you're doing here. That I was like, I, the, I was not putting the dots were not connecting for yeah, me on see, that one at all. I don't see either one. I I honest, I sincerely believe the left has a big strategy problem. 
Where well, even people that's certainly the case. Yeah, but I think this is very indicative of that. I think even people who in theory mean well and are right on the issues, they are just complete and utter idiots when it comes to actually doing something effectively and bringing about the change. And I don't even think, like you agreed to my general framework of like, here's when protests are good. I don't even think these people would agree with that. Right. I don't even think they'd agree you have to disrupt power centers to force concessions or you have to get more but people on your side. I, I think they just want like, we'll do anything and get more eyeballs. Look at us. Look at us. And, and we'll push sure. our issue. And it's I, like, I am, no, that doesn't fucking work. I'm like 90 percent sure that these are the same people as the like throwing soup at paintings uh, people. And, and the argument that they made was just like getting any attention to our issue is a win. But like, that's nonsense. Fact, it's even like, though it's congrats, like, everybody hates you now. That like, doesn't help you. That overwhelmingly you. negative. I mean, this is kind of like the Trump theory of the case, right? Like all attention is good attention. That's that's their theory of the case. And so the more outrageous or the more potentially like dis dissonant and confusing the protest, the more effective. I don't agree. I, I don't agree stupid. with that piece. This one I see the point of, and it does make some sense to me. I, I also just think it's kind of dishonest, too, when somebody like me comes along, and there are a lot of people out there who agree with me on this, where it's like, here's how I'd fix it, because I think your goal is good, but yeah. you're... And if somebody like me says that, they immediately go like, you're not even down for the movement! And it's like, shut the fuck up. That's not true, and now you've undermined your entire argument because you're not acknowledging a basic fact that people can agree with you on the goal but think the strategy is stupid. Right. When you act like that's not even a category, that's not even a thing, it's yeah. like, now nah, you're just the silliest person on the right. planet. You I know what I mean? I want to know why you're not down with the movement, babe. <laughs> deeply disappointed in you. you. Look at my boy band hair. I'm clearly <laughs> down with the movement. Oh, you were talking about the, the anti-oil movement. Yes. Yeah, I, I'd have nothing to immediately point to on that one. But for the gay thing, look at my hair. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get to our guests. Let's talk about vaccines and pandemics and all the things. Let's jump into it. Welcome, Dr. Wilson from the, is it Debunk the Funk YouTube channel? Yeah, that would be it, yep. That's, I, that name is awesome. Great that's name. A, yeah, that's a phenomenal name. <laughs> and even better content. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So uh, we wanted to uh, to talk to you because... RFK Jr. has been, he's running the Democratic primary along with Marianne Williamson against Joe Biden. And uh, he sort of made quite a name for himself. He's been doing the podcast circuit. And um, he claims, look, I'm not really running on uh, these, whatever, his vaccine claims and his, his claims on various medicine and big pharma. But, you know, to this point, this has sort of dominated his career. It's been like his main focus in his career along with um, environmentalism or aspects of environmentalism. And, um, you know, on my channel, I've quite a few times I've, uh, you know, dove into some of his claims. And uh, in my experience, whenever I dive into it, I find very quickly that like, hey, this actually isn't true. And you keep repeating it. And <laughs> that's not good. Uh, in fact, <laughs> Crystal did an interview with him and I thought she did a great job. And we got some policy answers out of him in terms of what he supports. But, you know, they got derailed on the vaccine point. So I wanted to talk to somebody who's an actual expert on this. And you are indeed an expert on this. You did a video going claim by claim in, you know, much more expertise than I provide in my video because this is, you know, your field of study. So um, I wanted to basically, uh, you know, bring up the claims that he makes and then give you free reign to describe whether or not you think there's any credence or whether or not it's totally factually false or what have you. So um, let's go ahead and jump right into it here. So the one of the biggest claims that's made by RFK and, and many anti-vaxxers is that thimerosal <clears throat> or mercury in vaccines is causing autism and or other problems. How do you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. And it's, it's a very old one. Uh, so the claim that 
mercury in vaccines in the form of thimerosal uh, causes autism is been around for a long time. Uh, and for some reason, it's persisted even after thimerosal was taken out of all childhood vaccines. So today, there are only some um, multi-dose flu vaccines that have uh, thimerosal in them. No childhood vaccines have thimerosal. And yet, the rate of autism diagnosis went up uh, after thimerosal was taken out. Um, did RFK Jr. say, oh, never mind, we were clearly wrong that thimerosal isn't causing this rise in autism? No, he, he just pivoted to uh, things like aluminum. Uh, so it, the epidemiology doesn't check out right away. Um, and also, there have been lots and lots of studies on thimerosal in vaccines and in, in regards to its safety. And it's found to be safe. Uh, that's because the dose makes the poison and the mercury that's contained in vaccines is a form of mercury that is safer than the form we would find just out in the environment. So the form you're getting from, say, tuna fish uh, is going to be uh, more dangerous per, per amount than the form that, uh, found in vaccines. So, uh, but the most interesting point about that is that yeah, our kid junior just kind of uh, pivots away from the fact that uh, that ingredient was taken out and nothing about autism really, really changed. Could you speak to that piece? Can you speak to that piece about the rate of increase in um, autism diagnoses? Because this is a, a key claim I've I've heard him make a lot of times. You know, it's sort of the correlation equals causation thing where it's like, well, Rates of autism really started to rise at the certain point in, I think it was the 90s. And, you know, this is the time when there was this uh, explosion in terms of the schedule of vaccines that that children were expected and were, were, gonna, were taking. Um, and so these two things, there, there are only a handful of things that could have been introduced at that point that caused this spike. And so this is this is potentially one of the reasons why we've seen this increase in the incidence of autism. Can you speak to what do uh, scientists think are the, the real reasons behind that rise if it was not vaccines? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to go to next. Um, so autism uh, is a uh, form, it's a neurological form that we've learned a lot about in the past few decades. So the criteria for it has expanded a lot to include uh, different signs and symptoms that previously weren't recognized or called something else. Uh, it's also been expanded to be included in lots of uh, healthcare uh plan. So there's a lot more uh, things that people can do to uh, get benefits from it. Um, and so really, it's not that autism is increasing, it's that diagnoses are just being uh, are just increasing because we're recognizing it more. Um, that expansion also included, uh, you know, including people above a certain age uh, in the autism diagnosis. So this is what pretty much every expert in the field of autism research and epidemiology will, will tell you, is that we're not getting more autism per se, we're just uh, understanding it better and recognizing it more. So that's, RFK Jr. will say, no, that's not true. I never saw people with autism my age. And he, he gets really kind of offensive with it, saying like he never saw people with helmets and whatnot. But uh he it's that's disingenuous because his people in his own family might have been considered autistic by today's standards 
Um, so I, I think he's really disingenuous with that. It's really just diagnoses that are increasing because we understand it better. Is there any research that looks at, okay, because I've heard him make that claim as well, like you don't see adults um, of a certain age who are autistic. Have there been any studies done that go and look at older co cohorts and apply the modern diagnostic criteria to see if the incidence is in fact the same for older generations as they are younger generations? Yes, actually, uh, there's uh, at least one study. It's in the description of my video that I made on his Rogan podcast, but they did look at uh, autism rates in different generations and found that they were similar when when applied with the same criteria. So just to uh, wrap up the thimerosal or mercury and vaccines thing, I just wanted to add that, um, you know, when I looked into it, one of the things I found very quickly is that there's, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong with my pronunciation or with the specifics here, but there's methylmercury and there's ethylmercury and one is dangerous and the other one really isn't. Uh, and then also, and I didn't know this, I thought this was very interesting, the thimerosal that was used as a preservative back then and still is in some limited vaccines, but it's a preservative. And the whole point of that preservative is that it kills bacteria, which would otherwise grow. So it's actually to keep the vaccine safe which is actually quite ironic because the whole point is this, you know, this is really bad for you or whatever, when it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, methylmercury is what you'll find in like say tuna fish or the earth's crust. Um, that molecule is more easily able to pass cell membranes. And uh, so it's more able to accumulate in your body uh, relative to ethylmercury, which is more easily excreted. Um, and also, uh, yeah, you're right. The thimerosal is mainly there as a preservative to not necessarily kill bacteria, but to prevent them from ever growing. Um, it, it's a technical distinction, but yeah, the point is to prevent vaccine lots from getting contaminated with bacteria or fungi. Obviously you don't want to inject those things into your muscle. So thimerosal is there to help ship them easier, help store them longer. And taking thimerosal out of vaccines actually made vaccines more expensive to make for big pharma. Uh, it was really quite a pain for them to reformulate the vaccines, retest the new formulations to uh, make sure that they're stable and they, they can be shipped in certain conditions. Um, and it made it harder to ship vaccines to places of the world that might need them more. So. Yeah, really, <laughs> uh, Big Pharma lost out in the end by taking thimerosal out of vaccines. And it was the FDA who said, you have to do this. So, And did they do know, that um, just to appease the growing anti-vax movement at the time? Is that the, is that the main reason why they did that? So in part, but it was mainly just because, uh, you know, there was this growing public concern and the FDA thought that there were other quote unquote safer uh, preservatives that they could use. So they said, just switch it out. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily a scientifically based decision. It was more of a just like keeping the public trust decision. Gotcha. Um, so is it more accurate to say that scientists have ruled out a link between autism and the childhood vaccine schedule or that it that link there has been no link found 
Do you see what I'm saying? The distinction like has there has there been research that has conclusively ruled out any potential link or has there just been, you know, not any research that has found any sort of link? I would say an, on a practical level that the vast body of research surrounding childhood vaccines and links to things like autism, we can pretty confidently say that it doesn't, that that link is not there. Um, you know, on a philosophical level, scientifically, you'll always be like, well, some study could come along and change that. Of course, you know, that's what science is about. Science is about um, finding new data to overturn old ideas. But practically, we have done very robust, very large scale studies looking for links between autism and vaccines, and none of them have found a convincing link at all. Yeah. And I'd also add the burden of proof is always on the person who's making the positive claim. So if somebody says the childhood vaccines are leading to autism, it's like the burden is now on you to demonstrate that it's not doesn't suddenly become a 50 50 proposition when somebody like brings it up. It's like you have to provide the evidence in order to reach that claim. So the burden of proof is not on the people who say there's no link. The default position is there's there's no link until you prove otherwise. Um, so now let me ask you uh, the next thing we have here. This is one of those claims uh, that I actually found rather shocking because once you dig into it, it falls apart instantly, dare I say. Um, RFK likes to claim that uh, no vaccines are subject to true placebo-controlled trials. Your, your mm -hmm. response? Yeah, that, that's just a lie. It, I mean, so his claims are kind of <clears throat> twofold there. He claims that no vaccine has ever been tested pre-licensure in a placebo-controlled trial, and he defines placebo as a saline saltwater placebo. Um, that is that is not true. Uh, the polio vaccines were famously tested in a randomized, double-blind, saline placebo-controlled trial back in 1954 with a lot of kids. Um, and in the placebo group, kids died. <clears throat> the only polio deaths in that trial were in the placebo group. Um, Shocking. So... Yeah. <laughs> um, also, you know, uh, he he gets away with it. It's such a blatant lie, but he gets away with it because subsequent vaccines. So pretty much every first vaccine that comes to market is tested against an inert placebo. But say we want to improve the polio vaccine. So we want a new formulation. We're not going to do a new randomized controlled trial with a saline placebo and the new formulation formulation of the polio vaccine because you're going to get the same results you did in 1954 you're going to get kids dying of polio potentially um it, it's unethical to do a placebo controlled trial with a updated version of a vaccine because mm. you have the first you have the first randomized trial which shows that it is it is effective and it prevents death so we cannot deprive people of that if you want a new vaccine that you think might be better for whatever reason, then you can test it against the one that already went through that randomized saline controlled uh, trial, because then you're just looking to improve efficacy, right? You know that the first trial showed safety. You have a, by then you have a uh, phase four surveillance track record of it. Uh, and if it's still on the market, then that means it's still safe. So. It, it's just really dishonest of him, and and I think he knows he can get away with it by uh, making those claims because it is slightly complicated. Uh, but to add to that, you know, 
uh, again, every first vaccine pretty much is tested in a saline placebo controlled trial. And we saw that, you know, just a few years ago with the COVID vaccine clinical trials, those were saline placebo controlled. So for him to say that there has never been one is a complete lie. So what is typically, so for the first vaccines, it is typically the saline control because uh, we'd listened to some analysis that suggested some of those vaccine placebos would have included the additives that are, you know, supposedly the thing that, that anti-vaxxers claim cause autism or cause other health problems. So uh, from what I've seen, I've been able to find that there were some groups in some clinical trials that did receive, uh, say, a formulation of vaccine minus the vaccine, but plus adjuvant, and another group that received just saline. Um, I'm sure there are trials that included uh, vaccine uh, minus adjuvant, just the vaccine minus the uh, active component. In other words, just the adjuvant in the placebo control. But the adjuvants themselves have been safety tested for many, many years. We've been using aluminum-based adjuvants since the 30s. We've been using um, most adjuvants for, for decades now. They have a long safety record. And so it just, you're just looking for efficacy mostly in these placebo control trials. Um, and so the, the adjuvant isn't going to make the vaccine, isn't going to be effective on its own against the disease, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so really in terms of safety, what you're really looking for is, are the phase four trials where it's rolled out to millions of people and then you can see those rare one in a million side effects and uh, more rare more rare adverse outcomes. And do you think that we do a good job? Like, Are there any tweaks you would make to the system of tracking vaccine injury? Um, I don't think I can make any suggestions on how to improve it. Uh, I'm not going to pretend I am that all-knowing, but uh, I will say that I think that current systems do a really good job uh, because we have been able to catch incredibly rare real vaccine side effects in the past. Uh, just with COVID vaccines, most recently, it, we've detected a one in a million chance event with the Janssen vaccines and the AstraZeneca vaccines and action was taken. Um, in the past, with the first rotavirus vaccine, there was a very, very rare risk of uh, something called intussusception, and that was caught. And so uh, there, there are lots more examples of that. And so I think it does a, it does a good job, but could it be better? Sure, probably, but I, I don't know how. <laughs> Yeah, just to just to reiterate your point there, which I think is a really good one, and this I forgot about this until recently. Yeah, they had like three confirmed cases after the Johnson and Johnson vaccine of like a rare blood clotting issue, and then with one of right. those people at least, they went to the hospital and they got the treatment for what would have been like regular blood clots, but for that particular kind of clot, that's actually not the right treatment, and it made it worse, and the person died. And I remember that at the time the FDA or the CDC or whoever it was, was like, all right, we're going to pull this off the market until we figure out, you know, exactly what's happening here and what the risks are, et cetera. And uh, you would think that that would be an instance of like, you know, anti-vax people being like, 
oh, look at this. They're taking uh, responsibility and accountability and proactive action to make sure everything is safe. But it was actually spun in like an opposite direction. Like, aha, see, we were right about it. And it's really, it's killing people. And, but again, the evidence showed it was like three confirmed cases. And even if you say they're only catching, you know, the smallest sliver of the number of people that are dying, it's clearly not, the number is not going to be astronomical, right? And they acted on it immediately. So if anything, that shows the, the extra caution that they proceed with. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so it was, I think by April of uh, 2021, I'm getting my dates right. Uh, that's when uh, there had been about six cases after six million doses of the Janssen vaccine of this of this rare, unique form of blood clotting, and that's when they said, let's let's pause it, let's have a moratorium, and let's number one figure out if this is a real phenomenon. Number two, figure out how to treat it. And then once we have answers to those things, then we can figure out how to move forward. And ultimately, um, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines were resumed, but with preferential recommendations. And if any vaxxers want to say, want to always say follow the money, you know, Janssen is a huge corporation, um, especially relative to Moderna, which was very small at the time. Um, and yet their vac Janssen's vaccine was preferentially being recommended against in favor of both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. So you would think that if this world where Big Pharma was, you know, paying off FDA and CDC and all these people that Janssen with more money would, you know, <laughs> have their vaccine get a better seat, but it, it didn't. It just went, it just went with the data. And just to... Just to remind everybody, too, the difference here between the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine were mRNA vaccines, which was the new technology at the time. But it had they had been working on it for quite a while. But this was the first time it actually hit the market, whereas the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, as well as I believe the AstraZeneca vaccine, these were I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they were sort of like old school vaccine technology where they used an adenovirus and they made it mimic what COVID-19 looked like. So ironically, it was more the older technology, not the new one that uh, for whatever reason ran into this issue. And, you know, it's funny because the anti-vaxxers were going after the mRNA vaccines when the Johnson & Johnson wasn't even an mRNA vaccine. Right, right. Yeah, so the uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines were adenoviral vector-based vaccines. Um, not, not necessarily an old-school vaccine technology, uh, but um, an old-school-ish uh, technology, just using an adenovirus to deliver a drug or vaccine product um, was an older technology. And in this case, um, that turned out to be the reason uh, most suspected of being why those vaccines cause those rare blood clotting because there's a protein in the adenovirus vector that they use, which has this sort of uh, mimicry interaction with a human protein called platelet factor four. And that initiates this clotting cascade. Um, on the flip side, the mRNA vaccines don't have that adenoviral vector, um, uh, that vector, and so they don't have that protein, and they don't initiate that clotting cascade, which is why uh, you didn't see the same rates of clotting in the two vaccines. Gotcha. So one of the other claims that um, that he makes and others make as well is that in order to obtain the emergency authorization that was required to get vaccines in arms more quickly during the, the COVID crisis, 
they had to not have alternative uh, therapeutic treatments available. And so he blames um, that need to get the EA for the dismissal of potential treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. He uh, name checks in particular. Can you can you tackle those pieces? Yeah, the, those are that's really frustrating because, uh, again, it's just a lie. Um, an EUA uh, does not require there to be nothing available for for treatment. Um, even before vaccines, we had treatments for COVID. We had tocilizumab, which is a antibody that can help dampen an immune response. We had corticosteroids, which do a similar thing. Uh, we had remdesivir, which is an antiviral. I mean, there were there were lots of things that could be done to treat COVID before vaccines. What what makes it an emergency is that it's still a pandemic virus that's still causing a lot of deaths. And we need not just one treatment, we need multiple treatments, we need vaccines, and we need all of it. Like it's a multifaceted approach that we that needs to be the solution. And so the EUA uh, considers that. And so that's why we saw, even after we had those early treatment options, uh, we still had vaccines. And then we had more vaccines, like, right? It wasn't like the first vaccine got an EUA and then none of the other ones could get an EUA. It's not written like that. And then even moving forward, having newer drugs like Paxlovid getting an EUA and monoclonal antibodies receiving EUAs, like, we had lots of lots of things getting EUAs. There's nothing like this ex magical exclusion idea that he talks about where, oh, we find ivermectin works against COVID. Never mind, it's not a pandemic anymore. We don't need any other drugs. No, <laughs> it's it doesn't work like that. Uh, so that's not an excuse as to why ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine didn't work. They, they just didn't work when uh, we have the randomized control trials to, to show that. Yeah. Could you speak to that a, a little bit more? Because that is one of the claims is that, you know, actually ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were supported by evidence that they did, in fact, work. It's just that there was less money to be made off of them. So they pushed in the direction of vaccines. What does the evidence say on that? Yeah. So doctors were trying lots of things uh, pretty much as soon as the pandemic started. Um, for, for people more interested in this, I could recommend going to uh, This Week in Virology. It's a podcast hosted by virologists and relevant experts. And they have a clinical update series with Dr. Daniel Griffin. The first one that he did was just a few days into the pandemic, uh, sitting in his car after coming out of the hospital and talking about, you know, what what's going on in the hospital. And for the next, uh, up until now, he's been talking about the clinical progress that clinicians are making in treating COVID. So uh, you can go listen to that. But yeah, um, uh, here I can say that um, there were lots of things tried against COVID, including hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Lots of different trials to uh, find out whether or not old drugs that we have sitting on the shelf could work against uh, this new pandemic virus. And if anything were to be found to work that we already have on our shelves, that would be a dream for big pharma because then they don't have to, number one, they don't have to spend the exorbitant fees and manpower and time to 
develop a new drug and send it through the approval process. They, they just have to reevaluate an existing drug for a new purpose. That's much cheaper to do. And then they could sell it at a, and, and it would be in such high demand because it's a pandemic virus. You know, it's spreading all over the world and lots of people are showing up at the hospital getting sick. Lots of people are testing positive. Even if ivermectin were found to be effective against COVID, Big Pharma would be the only ones who could supply enough to the world to meet the demand. And we saw, even when there was that big ivermectin craze and Joe Rogan was taking it and everything, Merck, which makes ivermectin, made a lot of money off of it. So the idea that Big Pharma can't make money off of old drugs, old repurposed drugs, it's, it's just not true. So let me ask you, this one actually blew my mind when I watched your video on it, because I like to think of myself uh, somewhat skeptical and able to parse through the BS, um, at least better than average, I would say. But there was one thing in particular that my default assumption um, was kind of dead wrong. <laughs> and you opened my eyes to it. And same thing for you, Crystal, too. I'm talking about vitamin D. So a lot of mm. people say, hey, man, taking vitamin D helps prevent COVID or even potentially treat COVID. And their evidence for that is that like 90 percent of COVID patients who are in the hospital were deficient in vitamin D. Do everybody a favor. Tell them, uh, I think one of your colleagues or something used an analogy to explain why this is wrong. Give everybody that analogy and tell everybody why this is actually incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. So my uh, friend, Dr. Ian Copeland, uh, he has this analogy where if you're a firefighter and you show up to a fire and you say, oh my gosh, there's all this smoke and ash at the fire and the building is, is, is falling apart. You know what? I'm going to get rid of the smoke and the ash and then that'll save the building. And that, that, that's not true. Uh, that's not what's going to happen. The smoke and ash are a product of the, the fire you have going. Um, and it's a similar problem when it comes to the body and a infectious disease. If your body is in this state where it's having this huge immune response and this uh, pathogen, a virus, is spreading to multiple tissues, then your tissues are going to become dysfunctional and you might uh, have a vitamin, a temporary vitamin deficiency. Restoring that vitamin deficiency, um, we know, isn't really going to help you, uh, similar to taking the smoke and ash out of a fire isn't going to stop the fire. Uh, we have clinical, randomized clinical trials testing that, uh, where people enter the hospital with COVID and they're given vitamin D, it just doesn't help them. Um, so yeah, it's not a treatment for COVID. And then there's the, people will say, well, what about taking vitamin D to prevent an infection or be more healthy when you encounter an infection? And to that, I'll say, well, obviously you don't want to be vitamin deficient. Like, I'm pretty sure every doctor for the last few decades has been saying, eat well, exercise, do those general things. So obviously being vitamin deficient is not good, but luckily if you are, you know, decently well off, you're probably not vitamin, as long as you're well off or you don't have a medical condition, you're probably not vitamin deficient. Um, you have to be pretty much malnourished to be have a consistent vitamin deficiency if you don't, if you don't have a medical condition. Um, but 
we've investigated that question too. Uh, does being does taking vitamins uh, reduce your chances of getting sick in the first place? And the answer is, if you're not vitamin deficient, not really. Uh, there's like a very small, sig small statistically significant rise uh, or benefit if you take a certain amount of vitamin D uh, in the literature, but the effect size is really, really, really small. So if you're not vitamin deficient and you, and you want to take vitamins, I mean, sure, go ahead, but it's probably not helping you. Um, and keep in mind, if you're of the follow the money mind, uh, vitamins is a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. So there's that. that is that That's is actually one of the things that drives me crazy because, yes. I mean, we actually are follow the money people and we have a lot of critiques of big pharma and the for-profit healthcare system and the way that, you know, we are price gouged as Americans. If you look at what we pay mm -hmm. for pharmaceuticals versus other countries, but it drives me insane when then the uh, response to that situation is to push people towards, quote unquote, you know, the supplement industry or the vitamin industry or alternative, quote unquote, medicine. alternative medicine. Like they're bigger like, snake oil sales. Right. <laughs> they're turning a profit and they're even less regulated. And there's no than, studies that back it up. Yeah. Than course. Big Pharma ultimately right. is where you uh, frequently, I mean, they've tested this before, like a lot of the supplements that you buy, you think you're getting one thing in the pill and it's not even what they're even putting in the pill because there's so right. such yeah. lax regulations around what these things mm -hmm. even are right yeah i mean i i'll totally agree with you there i don't like the business end of big pharma for lots of reasons the price gouging the um the way they incentivize their projects um by that i mean like you know some important things are falling by the wayside because they're not as profitable Right. Even they they want a lot of people. Their yeah, R&D is like, let's come up with a new formulation for Viagra because we right. know that's profitable yeah, or let's exactly. wage right. like patent war to extend our patent another 10 years so we can have a, you know, an unconscionable monopoly on this product. There's all kinds of issues there, but you can't you have to be able to hold two thoughts in your mind. The fact that there is real corruption, that there are real issues there, that there are other systems that do this a lot better but also be able to look at the evidence and the science and see things that genuinely work and are genuinely yeah. beneficial for people and for public health. I, I always say, I hate big pharma, but antibiotics work. I hate big pharma, mm -hmm. but vaccines work. Like, yeah, I have an right. issue with the profit motive. I have an issue with the price gouging, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the actual products in and of themselves, which are insanely tested at a high level, doesn't mean that they don't work. And I think that drives me crazy. You're right, Crystal, where like, there's this weird thing that happens where it's like not just skeptical of big pharma, but it crosses over into just outright science denial. Yeah. Let me ask you this question with regards to that. Do you think that our uh, the fact that our healthcare system is structured in kind of a morally bankrupt, unconscionable way where, you know, profit is king? Do you think that that makes people in our country more susceptible to, you know, lies and misinformation about vaccines as as one example, because, you know, there is a real problem there that you can point to. And it, you know, creates a, a, a system of mistrust and suspicion that's based on a real thing, but leads people to the wrong places. Yeah, I, I, I could totally see that. I mean, it's, it's a real problem. And what conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers have gotten good at doing is taking real complex problems and then twisting them in, in unrealistic ways 
to push their own agendas. So, yeah, I mean, the, the way that healthcare and uh, big pharma is set up in America is, is gross, it's yucky, there's lots of things about it that just I, I don't like. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the drugs are ineffective, but it's easy for, you know, uh, a conspiracy theorist to paint the picture of this, all of these uh, profit, uh, distorted profit motives and whatnot, and then say, therefore, vaccines are bad. Uh, and it can resonate with a lot of people. So, yeah, I, I think it, it does help them at the end of the day. Yeah, but, you know, it just it drives me crazy that they then turn around and buy, like, the most snake-oily product of all time because it's alternative medicine, man, and they don't want you to know this. I trust the guy who's selling that to me, even though he's making an even bigger <laughs> profit in terms of the percentage. Anyway, so let me ask you this, because this is one of those claims as well that he makes repeatedly. Uh, and, Crystal, you might even have something to add to this as well because you looked at the abstract of one of the studies where that supposedly makes this argument. But RFK claims that uh, people who got vaccinated are actually more likely to get COVID. Oh, yeah. So he is claim he's claiming that based on this uh, Cleveland Clinic study, which uh, looked at uh, COVID positivity rates within, uh, I think it was just healthcare workers uh, in the Cleveland Clinic, um, based on their the number of doses of vaccines they got. And in their in their data set, they measured a slight increase in test positivity um, if you have gotten the bivalent booster versus those who did not. However, if you look at other data sets, and there are lots of different problems with the paper that uh, we probably don't have time to go into here, but if you look at other data sets, uh, you don't see that uh, repeated. Uh, you don't see that trend repeated. If you look at uh, population level data from health report, independent health reporting systems from several different countries, they pretty much all say the same thing, that you are less likely to get infected uh, if you have been vaccinated. Um, but I want to also say that he, he sidesteps the actual point of vaccines, which the overall goal of any vaccine is to prevent disease, not an infection. Um, it was easy to misunderstand that in the past where say with polio or measles, the only way you would know that you had um, polio or measles is if you got really sick and had per, uh, paralysis symptoms with polio or if you got a rash with measles. With COVID, uh, now we have sensitive uh, PCR tests that can detect a pure infection. Uh, so it, it's, it's different uh, where, you know, a vaccine in the past, you wouldn't have you known from... that you had it. In the past, you would have been like, I'm not sick at all. But now we just have right. the data to know, like, oh, I have the virus, but I don't feel anything. Right. Like, if you, if you, uh, like, with the polio example, if you were PCR testing everyone's guts, uh, that sounds bad, but if you were PCR <laughs> testing um, <laughs> everyone for uh, polio, and the polio virus is in your guts, which is why I said that, but... Um, you would find it everywhere because the polio vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting infected. What it prevents okay. is it prevents the virus from progressing past your your gut into your uh, nervous system and causing paralysis. That That's what the vaccine prevents. It doesn't prevent you from getting initially infected. So if you were PCR testing people for 
polio back when back in like 1960s after the polio vaccine had been rolled out you would probably see similar misinformation of oh look people who are vaccinated are testing positive at high rates yeah but they're not getting paralyzed and it's it's the same thing for for covid like yes uh covid vaccines are not 100% effective and yes you can still get infected with them but you're much much less likely to suffer uh to go to the hospital to go to the icu or to die and that is really the point do you think that that was communicated effectively by public health officials because the original mantra with the vaccines was stop the spread and um you know particularly i think the initial vaccines you know matched up better with the particular strain of the virus that was out and did help more with breakthrough infections as you had more um you know evolution of the strains where the vaccine was less effective against breakthrough infection infections this became kind of a key talking point of look you're still getting COVID even though you're getting the vaccine so what even is the point do you think that public <laughs> health officials effectively and accurately characterized what the vaccine should be expected to do no, I, I don't think so, unfortunately. It, it was, I mean, granted, it was a really tough job um, because during the pandemic, the news cycles, they wanted quick answers. They wanted answers right away. And normally in science, you know, uh, you, you see the debate and the story develop behind closed doors. The public doesn't even see it. You know, it, it develops in lab meetings and at conferences and in the hallways in between experiments. Um, but with the pandemic, there was a lot less time for all of that. And so when the initial uh, studies came out showing that, yeah, vaccines do prevent uh, you from getting infected within this short time frame, then that was the major talking point that public health mm. officials cho chose to chose to go with. And in hindsight, you can easily look back and say, well, yeah, it was likely to that uh, protection against infection was like was likely to drop because we know that antibody levels spike following uh, vaccination, and then your body isn't going to constantly produce all those antibodies. That's just not energetically efficient. What what your body will have is an immune memory that can kick in faster once you encounter the real thing. Uh, so we knew those antibody levels were going to come down and your protection against infection might might also go down. However, protection against severe disease, which is the point, will um, will remain thanks to the immune memory, which we knew was there. I mean, that's a really complicated thing to uh, communicate. And I think public health officials chose to have the punchier message. Mm. Um, and, you know, I can't I can't sit here and say that they they knew that the levels were going to come down and that um, and that what they were saying wasn't completely accurate. Uh, but I'm saying it's easy to make that mistake and to go with the punchy message in a high stress, uh, high, high anxiety time where everyone's demanding quick answers. Um, and now it's easy to look back and see that it was a mistake. So, Dr. Wilson, we're quickly running out of time with you, so I want to pitch a few more of these to you and let you, uh, you know, respond to them. One of the uh, one of the claims that he makes is the Vaccine Act gave immunity to pharma and made it so they can't get sued for negligence. How do you respond to that? Uh, this is another frustrating one because he himself, I mean, he knows this is a lie because he himself is suing um, Merck. He's suing Merck for uh, Gardasil. Gardasil uh, vaccines specifically 
So he knows that he can sue pharma companies for vaccines. He knows it, but he keeps saying this. And it's, again, one of those situations where it's a complex topic and it's easy to take advantage of, where it is true that in 1986 uh, uh, or 1980s, might be getting my dates wrong, um, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program was formed in America. And that made it so that uh, normal citizens could not sue vaccine manufacturers for what they perceived to be vaccine injuries. Because what was happening was uh, something like what we see now, where there's this kind of thing in the public consciousness that's making people think that vaccine injuries are really common. And so they think that um, lots of things that are that aren't vaccine injuries are actually vaccine injuries. And they were suing vaccine manufacturers. And vaccines don't make pharma a lot of money. So pharma was like, okay, we're losing, we're, we're losing money at this point making these vaccines because people keep thinking that, you know, it's, it's hurting them. So we're just going to stop making them. And so then the government had to step in and say, uh, we actually need these vaccines because we want our kids to not have vaccine preventable diseases like tetanus, diphtheria, polio, measles, which can kill them. Uh, so we're going to set up this vaccine injury compensation program. And this was done actually in collaboration with anti-vaxxers. Uh, Barbara Lowe Fisher was a big, um, a big uh, force in making this happen. And what the vaccine injury compensation program did was it made it a lot easier for uh, people who were genuinely injured by vaccines to get compensation. And I think that's a good thing because vaccines are not 100% safe. Nothing is 100% safe. And if you genuinely got injured by a vaccine, you deserve that compensation. Um, so that's what the vaccine injury compensation program does. However, vaccine manufacturers are absolutely still beholden to not commit fraud, to not be negligent, and to follow all the regulations surrounding vaccines. If they don't do that, they are absolutely going to get sued and uh, lose a lot of money and potentially worse. Uh, gotcha. So he's he's not being truthful there. Um, the last question that I have for you is is a bit more meta, which is, you know, why does it matter to have accurate information on these things? How much harm have these sorts of claims done either currently or in the past? Because, you know, one thing I was worried about with the uh, COVID vaccine skepticism, which really took off on the right, was that this was going to bleed over into other, um, you know, more accepted vaccines. But I did recently see some polling that showed that, you know, that really hadn't been the case, that people still really widely, it was like 90 some percent of Americans think those vaccines are safe. There hasn't been, at least that we've recorded yet, any decrease in terms of, um, you know, uptake of, of childhood vaccines. Kids are still getting them to go to school and all seems to be carrying on okay on that front. So could you speak to, to the impact here what why any of this stuff matters yeah you know i i hear what you're saying and i i've seen um some conflicting polling as well i think the truth is probably that the needle hasn't moved much uh since pre-pandemic in terms of uh childhood vaccination but uh we'll wait on future data to actually know the answer to that but i think it's important to combat this misinformation because as we have seen with the COVID pandemic, when people believe this misinformation, then a lot of harm can come from it. Um, what I worry about 
a lot in particular is uh, being ready for the next pandemic. Because the next pandemic, it's going to happen eventually, probably within our lifetimes. And it might be worse than SARS-CoV-2. And when that happens, are people still going to be refusing to wear masks? Are people still going to be refusing to take the medications that have been proven to be effective? Or are they going to take vaccines? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they'll be, if they'll be, uh, and they'll probably be less willing to do all those things, uh, given the current state of how people view COVID. Um, so I, I worry a lot about that. And I also think it's just important to combat this misinformation so that it doesn't spread. Um, we've seen a lot of people, including Robert Kenny Jr., rise to larger platforms off the back of the misinformation that was spread during COVID. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of science communicators have done a lot of work in the past few decades to combat Kennedy and others, uh, childhood vaccination, uh, schedule misinformation, but we need more, we need more scientists communicating good science to the public, uh, so that these ideas have less of a foothold whenever they do get the platform that they're getting now. Uh, that, that's my view on it. And that's why I do this YouTube hobby. Well, Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Do everybody a favor and plug your YouTube channel. And I'll also highly recommend your video uh, reacting to RFK on Joe Rogan's podcast. You're very thorough. You go claim by claim. You show a tremendous amount of evidence. And uh, I think you did a massive service. So tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, I'm, I'm on YouTube. Uh, my channel is Debunk the Funk with Dr. Wilson. Um, and I try to make videos whenever I can. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you. Super grateful. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you sure. too. Take care. Our pleasure. All right, there you have it. That was Dr. Wilson. Um, so we only had limited time with him, and he was at work. He was just like doing audio. In the middle of his work day, yeah, doing real so, stuff. But, I mean, shout out to him for making time at all to, to do this. I really appreciate that. Um, but some of the things that I was going to also bring up, uh, because I made a whole list of, like, various RFK Jr. claims that I think deserve a reaction. Uh, he likes to link vaccines and pharmaceutical drugs to the massive increase in chronic disease. And I think that's a honestly a pretty easy one to slap down. Um, he talked about how there's a certain chemical which turns frogs like intersex and that this may be leading to gender dysphoria in adults. That's a claim that has been, uh, you know, scorned by the people who are actually experts in it. It is true that the uh, chemical does that to frogs, but it's a totally different scenario when it we comes to frogs. people. Correct. Um, and he also said the Spanish flu was vaccine-induced. Uh, he has dab too, dabbled right? in, yeah, the HIV, AIDS, denialism type stuff. So there's a lot of stuff to get to. But what I wanted to ask you, I, I was trying to get you to bring it up in the context of the conversation, but we didn't get around to it. Um, on the claim that people who got vaccinated are actually more likely to get COVID, you read an abstract of a study, which is supposed to be a source for this anti-vaccine claim. Right. And tell everybody what you found, because this is actually really interesting and super indicative of how this stuff functions. Well, it just it doesn't control for any of the various reasons why people may have been more inclined to get 
those additional vaccines. So certain people are more susceptible for a whole variety of reasons and have various comorbidities that may make them, you know, uh, suffer more (laughs) harm if they do get COVID. And so none of that was taken into account. And once you controlled for those factors, what was found is exactly what was reported, which is the vaccines actually do provide a tremendous amount of uh, protection. And I actually thought it was, I thought it was interesting the way he framed it though. It's just like, this, that's not even what vaccines are really supposed to do. Like, and I appreciate that he acknowledged that public health officials kind of screwed up in that regard because they didn't explain to people, people were expecting, I'm going to get the vaccine and I'm not going to get COVID. I can't get COVID. I can't pass it. Yeah. Yeah. Stop the spread. That was the whole like, that was the whole thing that was being sold to the public. And so then when very quickly after vaccines are rolled out, people are getting breakthrough infections. People are like, wait a second, this is not doing what I thought it was going to do. So that was a piece that was um, interesting and, and, you know, provoked a sort of like mental shift for me of that's actually not even what vaccines are really intended to do. The whole point is always you're trying to protect against severe illness and against death. Um, and, you know, he gave some great examples there, but it, it would have been definitely better if that had been explained better to the American people. But those are the sorts of things that, you know, anti-vaxxers will then seize on and go 10 steps further to argue not only did it not protect against breakthrough infection, but actually, if you get the vaccine, you're more likely to get COVID. Yeah, what happened, they take like a nugget of truth, mm-hmm. extrapolate, misrepresent, and then run with it. And yeah, that is infuriating. I remember I always I always reference this thing. There was this study in King County in 2021 uh, during the height of the pandemic. Now, you know, you've alluded to the fact the first variant, the vaccines protected very well against that. It was literally made for that. Then you had the Delta. It was still pretty good against that. But then the more we got new variants, got the Omicron or whatever, the more you got yeah. the new variants, the less protection you had up front, certainly from getting it or spreading it. But it still provided that protection from severe illness, hospitalization and death. And then now they did. The, they updated one of the vaccines now and made it for one of the more recent variants. And so that's, you know, maybe it'll provide a little more protection on that front. But this King County study, uh, people who aren't fully vaccinated were seven times more likely to test positive for COVID. People who are not fully vaccinated are 49 times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID. And people who are not fully vaccinated are 32 times more likely to die of COVID-19 related illness. So look, every time I I look, because I I listen and I'm like, okay, let me read about that. And Every time I do that, these claims just crumble under minimal scrutiny. Yeah. And then it becomes a question like, is your goal just to take the person who sounds the most contrarian and just swallow it hook, line and sinker? Oh, they're telling me the real truth is being hidden from from everybody. Or is your goal to actually get to the truth? And so you have to take in a variety of different sources, try to comb through it and get to the reality of the situation. And I think a lot of people, especially in the Internet era, it's just sexier to be like the person who said the most over the top thing is the one who must be telling the truth and everybody else is trying to hide it from you. Knee-jerk contrarianism is just as stupid as knee-jerk, like, mainstream, beltway. I always believe that, yeah. I mean... Criminal contrarians, I call them. (laughs) Yeah, you you have to be able to parse through claims and sort, hold nuance in your mind, like, recognize the fact that, yeah, big pharma, there's a lot of problems there, corrupt, you know, and government capture. All those things are real. The the core rot of for-profit healthcare is part of what enables, allows all of this stuff to fester. And yeah, I think you should be skeptical of, you know, the ask your doctor commercials and, you know, the some of the things that that are pushed. Like you should be skeptical. You should keep in mind what the financial incentives are. 
But you also have to be able to look at what the medical evidence suggests and not just in like pharma funded studies, but in their university studies. studies, they reject. Right. I mean, yeah, listen, come how on, many man. people around the world took the vaccine Billion. There were studies all around the world and not every country is as screwed up and stupid as we are with regard to this stuff and have much less corruption where this is involved. And, and you know, routinely the answer came back. There's a, a low rate of vaccine injury. It is, you know, nothing is 100 percent safe, but this was pretty safe. And it provided a significant degree of protection for a lot of people. And by the way, just the contradiction of like being super like, oh, I don't know if I want to put that in my body. It's sort of scary. There's that. And then usually those same people, if they get COVID, they're like, throw the kitchen sink at it. Give me everything you got. Yeah. You know, give me the monoclonal antibodies. Give me the ivermectin. Give me the hydroxychloroquine. Give me the, just my body is a, you know, a pharmaceutical company now. Just throw, give me, give well, me, give me, give me. And it's like, wait a second. Why not that same mindset right. beforehand? Right. One of one of the claims um, from RFK and others uh, is that we did the, our vaccine first approach was the worst approach. If you look at Nigeria is the particular country that they hold up, like they had much lower rate of death. And it's like, are, you won't believe a hundred studies from around the world, you know, conducted in various circumstances, many of them without any sort of big pharma financial size. You won't believe that, but you believe the Nigerian government COVID <laughs> death statistics? Like, okay. Oh my God, that is, but, that's too good. You know, you have to... You have to be able to subject your claims to a certain level of arm's length scrutiny. You have to be willing to change your mind if, you know, if the evidence changes. And I think the perfect example of that is the the anti-vax community was all in on like mercury is the thing. That's what's causing autism. And so public health officials basically caved to that and were like, OK, if people are concerned about this, like, that's fine. We'll take it out. And rates of autism continue to rise. But and they just than, move the goalposts. Yeah, rather like, than being like, that, oh, okay, yeah. I guess it wasn't that. Well, you know, then they're like, well, nah. That, well, that's what he just taught me, that, like, they, uh, anti-vaxxers were involved in the creation of this fund that would do pay people out if they're vaccine injured, but it's not the pharma company, it's a separate entity working with the government. And so he was describing that this is what anti-vaxxers wanted. Yeah. They got it. And then they turn around and use it as like it's part of the conspiracy. It's like you were asking for the thing that you got. Yeah. What are you well, talking about? You can't do that. The the thing that that whole anecdote made me think of, though, is, you know, this is under the, the Reagan administration. And, you know, obviously they're like radical right wing free marketeers, whatever. The real answer to that situation of the drug makers be like, we don't even make enough money on vaccines. And so we're going to hold you hostage and we're not going to make these things anymore is to be like, OK, fine, we're going to make them. Don't worry about it. Get out of the business and have the government well, take take over and have some aspect of, of public pharma. And, and that was one of for me, the key you know, answers that I got in interviews with RFK juniors when I asked them like, OK, you have this critique of big pharma, at least this anti-vaxxer that I don't agree with. But, you know, the, so, some of the critique I really do share. So would you nationalize it? Would you at least have a, a public pharma option, which is something that is becoming mainstream, even in places with politicians like Gavin Newsom is doing something like that with insulin in California? No, that's off the table. Well, and that's the debate ending point is that he actually gets outflanked on his own game because the whole uh, if your concern is all about big pharma and how it's for profit and the price gap, people are a hundred percent with you on that. So the answer is to nationalize that industry in the same way that there should be no for profit health insurance industry. It should be single payer. There should be zero profit motive on that front. That's the answer. And you don't support it at all. 
You don't even support the half-assed version, like you said, of the public pharma. Right. Which is like a public option, but for pharmaceutical drugs. So what what are you babbling about? Like what you're it's much ado about nothing. You're making all these claims and doing all this conspiracy stuff. At the end of the day, you don't even you don't even support the thing that would assuage your own fears the most. Right. Yeah. Yep. I thought that was, you know, to me that was that was interesting. And so that not only do I not share the anti-vax views, but I don't agree with ideologically with the solutions that he I'm a proud free marketeer. That's what I am, bro. Yeah. That's the line that's that he fine. goes with. That's yeah, not I'm not I I'm not that <laughs> if I haven't made that clear. Nationalize big pharma, nationalize the health insurance industry. Those are that's the area where I'm like the furthest left is when you talk about pharma yeah. and health insurance. Agreed. I'm the furthest left. All right. Well, that's the show, guys. We love you very much. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, everybody do us a big favor. Um, go ahead over to Substack, and if you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every interview, and you get it a day early. Everybody else can sign up on Substack for free, and you get the audio of every show, and you get it a day later, usually on Saturdays. We love you guys very much. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. Peace.